Deadly Grounds Coffee knows how important your coffee is to you. Every batch is roasted to perfection with a unique special method that brings out the richest, deepest, smoothest flavor you'll ever find. We're coffee freaks too, and deadly serious about our brew. Just one sip and you'll know why we say, once you go deadly, you don't go back. It's truly coffee to die for. So when you're ready to get a little deadly, get online and order yours at getdeadly.com. It's coffee so good, it's scary. Warning! Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Hello, I am your host, Rigor, and this is The East Meets the West with my co-host, Patsy the Angry Nerd. How are you doing today, Pat? I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited to talk about these uh, these movies because uh, I was pretty happy with both of them. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Same same here. I was um, really excited to talk about them myself. Um, so that being said, folks, today we are going to cover the Shaw Brothers film, The Magnificent Ruffians from 1979, once again, uniting all of the Venom mob. And Ace High from 1968, the spaghetti western sequel to God Forgives, I Don't, starring Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer, who reprise their roles as Cat and Hutch. So first up is The Magnificent Ruffians, which is the seventh movie on the list of Venom Mob films. And once again, for new listeners, the Venom Mob is a term used for the six actors who were originally in the film The Five Deadly Venoms and who they acted together in some form or another over the next few years, racking up about 19 films, most of which are directed by Chang Che, and they're considered Venom mob films. So last episode, we actually covered uh, the fifth Venom film, titled Shaolin Rescuers, and we were supposed to do the sixth film today, which is called Shaolin Daredevils, but um, we had some conflicting plot descriptions wherever we looked, and any version that we saw did not have any of the Venom actors in it. However... I was able to get in contact with a wonderful listener named Masha, and she pointed me in the right direction of a German DVD print of the film, and uh, it, which also has an English dub track. So once we get that and confirm it's the right film, which I'm sure it will be, we're going to circle back here and cover it. Excellent. Yeah. So I'm kind of I'm glad it took me a little bit of research. I finally there's she's always posting 
you know, comments on our uh, Then Is Now stuff. So I figured I'd reach out to her because she seemed very knowledgeable. And she was. She even sent me a picture, like, right away of what the film was. So thank you, Marsha, for setting us up with um, where to get the film. Yes, thank you. So let's get started with The Magnificent Ruffians from 1979. Lon's escort company. He has a good site. It's right in the middle of the town's best business area. I want it. I've told Chin and Cho to seek one and to make him sell. Yes, I want sell. I'd like you to be my guest to discuss Kung Fu. Won't burn your house. So forget it. Guan Yun. They'll get rid of him. But don't tell them that. So... Here's a quick history lesson so the listeners can understand the motivation of Lu Feng's villainous character, Yuan Ying Fei. During the Qing and other earlier dynasties, it was an honorable profession to be the head of what's called an escort company, also known as a security company. And you had many a swordsman or martial artist that wanted to make his name not only in the world of Jiang Hu and its subsociety of Wu Lin in such a company, but also in the eyes of the government and the business sector. However, with the fall of the Qing dynasty and the advent of modern weapons, security companies rapidly declined, leaving maybe one or two per city. Now, with all these former martial artists and swordsmen out of a job, they became like ronin, which are masterless fighters looking for work from anyone willing to pay. And as you might imagine, the competition was stiff. So the movie opens with Lu Feng, a warlord who uses a golden spear, bemoaning that Kung Fu has become useless. Guns are being introduced to China, and no one wants to learn the martial arts anymore. Lu's protection agency is suffering, but he still finds time to trick what few Kung Fu fighters he can find into coming to his town so he can murder them in mortal combat. Lu greets visiting Kung Fu fighters like a perfect gentleman, and then slaughters them without mercy. In another part of Lu's town, Sun Chan... Chang Sheng and a new guy, Wang Li, bum around as starving kung fu fighters who've been left unemployed by China's many recent changes. What they do is eat their fill in restaurants and then let the employees beat them up instead of paying. Kuo Choi, aka Philip Kwok, is in a similar plight, and eventually he hooks up with the three. Meanwhile, Lo Meng plays a hot-tempered owner of a failing escort or security agency. Lu Feng wants to buy his property, but Lo won't sell instead beating Lu's men into submission. Lo lives with his mom and sister, both of whom try to keep him from fighting. Yes, Lo Meng is a total mama's boy in this movie. But what's worse is that he's barely in it until the middle half. Now, Lu Feng eventually gets Philip Kwok and his pals to live at his estate where they're free to drink, carouse, and practice kung fu. Lu's plan is to get the four of them to take out Lo Meng. He can't do this himself because he's smitten with Lo Meng's cute sister, so he wants Lo killed quietly. Lu fools Kwok and his pals into thinking that Lo Meng is a bad guy who needs to be punished. The four of them head over to Lo's place, but a problem arises. The five quote-unquote ruffians, realize that they share the same outlook on life. Instead of killing Lo, the four become friends with him, meeting him every afternoon at an abandoned temple to practice kung fu. Lu has his henchmen secretly replace Kuo Choi's staff with a replica that's stuffed with explosives. At their next kung fu practice, Kuo hits Lo with it, 
The explosion kills him. Shocked, Ko Choi runs for his life as Chang Sheng, Sun Qian, and Wang Li assume he's been hired by Lu to murder Lo Meng. Lu's happy with the results and shows up promptly to take on the three of them in quote-unquote revenge for Lo. The three realize they've been duped and put on a heroic stand, but only Chang Sheng survives Lu Feng's devastating techniques. Chang Sheng and Ko Choi team up after discovering the disturbing fate of Lo's mother and sister. They decide to take on Lu Feng. Not understanding his style, they are informed by the local restaurant owner about how Lu Feng has turned so dark and shares the secrets of his kung fu styles, most of which are his own creations. Chang Sheng and Philip Kwok train together, trying to imagine the moves that Lu Feng would use so they can counter them. Then, once they are ready, they confront Lu Feng, and the three engage in a battle at dawn the next morning, in a fight that's brimming with the flips, leaps, and violence that one would expect from the Venoms. Of course, only one of them is left standing at the end. So, Patsy, first impressions. Um... This had, you know, I, I know I said this last week, but this had some of the better uh, choreography that we've seen in a long time really uh, highlighted the acrobatics. And I like the fact that we got to see some new weapons like this long golden sword. Yeah, uh, I thought that was so cool. Oh, yeah. And he, he in the last movie, Lo, uh, Lu Fang had a similar um, weapon like that, that he, you know, he that seems to be his weapon of choice. It, yeah, it was uh, it wasn't quite as. Uh, extensive though like this one obviously you know we add the gold into it and he used it to kind of blind blind his opponents a couple of times yeah but this seemed to be like a, a longer staff uh with the with the blade on the end of it the other one yeah it was a very similar weapon but i think this one was almost like an exaggerated version of that oh yeah and it was just very imposing when you when you saw it i was very upset that there were no flags uh <laughs> the, deadliest, the deadliest weapon in uh all of the venom verse um, but uh, <laughs> no this, cloth yeah, crew here. You know, you got to see uh, a lot of the you know acrobatics that these guys have. You know, a lot of flips and uh, you know the slow motion backflip repeatedly as as he's he's swinging at his sword. Especially the final fight. Oh yeah. Uh, favorite parts of this is when they were trying to uh, train and come up with a plan. Like, okay, when he does this, we're gonna do this. When he does that, that's when you go over there, and I'll go over here. And like they kind of superimposed like what he was doing. So you could kind of see what their plan was as they were practicing. You could kind of see like a phantom image of uh, Lu Feng as he's as like, they're trying to practice like, okay, this is what we're imagining based on what the restaurant owner told us. And that's something we haven't really seen before. I mean, while we've seen training sequences, that's the specific way that you described that they presented to us. We, at least up to this point, you and I haven't seen it in these movies. Yeah, and and this, of course, had all the all the hallmarks of, uh, you know, the Venom films that we've come to know and love, like someone having uh, a ridiculous injury and still battling on for several minutes. <laughs> um, you know, some ridiculous leaps. Like that's really the only time they they cut from the fighting is uh, unless they're going to a new angle. Like when they had that that one overhead shot that was really awesome. Yeah, you know, only when guys are doing like ridiculous leaps. Like oh, I'm doing a backflip off these uh, like the little uh, the poles that they were using to kind of balance on. Right. The they use it in the last movie as well. Like they're making fun of everybody. Right. Was it the Jupiter poles? Yeah, and. Uh, <laughs> One guy that fell into it and it collapsed on him like a <laughs> like a Venus flytrap. Right. Uh, there was a lot more comedy in this, and I thought the characters were a little more endearing. You know, when it's like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'll pay for their meal, so you don't beat this guy," 
And then it turns out he didn't have any money either. Right. Um, and that's what kind of like endeared him to uh, to their friends. And, and poor Chang like, Chang. I don't know. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, maybe they had like some kind of like tapeworm because they go and they eat. And then like, you know, you know, they take turns getting the, the, the crap kicked out of them. And then they're like, oh, man, I'm still really hungry. It's like you just ate like 12 <laughs> seconds ago. Like, <laughs> well, it's Chinese food. You're always hungry, you know, a little while later. <laughs> Yeah, but not that that too. And it's like, oh, I just ate. Well, time to eat again. It's like, Jesus, like, give him a few minutes. I just thought it was funny too that Chang Sheng kept pawning his swords to to buy a meal, and then he ended up getting them back again. Yeah, like over and over again. It's yeah. like, oh, I mean, it worked for him. So right, because I will never pawn my swords. They're a priceless family heirloom. Yeah, I will say the uh, the version that we saw. I did come across the uh, one thing that you warned me about is that sometimes the dub just goes into Chinese with no explanation and no warning. Right. Talk in Chinese for several minutes and then just switch right back. And I also noticed the soundtrack changed a little bit. Yes. Not much, but it was slightly different music and much louder. And then it would cut right back. So it's almost like the two tracks. uh, It's like someone uh, recorded the track, but didn't get all of it, like taping a song off the radio. Right, right. But it didn't take away from my enjoyment of this movie. Like this was... A lot of fun. Oh, um, absolutely. It's just, I didn't like the 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 motivation for Lu Fang when he's just like, oh, no one does kung fu anymore. Bring someone here who does kung fu so that I may murder them. <laughs> like, shouldn't you like want to train them up and like continue the tradition? Right. Well, if they can't kill me, then I don't want them around. <laughs> what are you a Sith? Like, I don't get it. <laughs> Oh, he was really villainous in this one. I, I think almost worse than the last movie. Like more evil. He was very cold. Yeah. Yeah. Like you know, even in the in the other ones, when you know these guys play villains, like there's still a, a like a joviality to them. Like you know, they're kind of fun. Like a, a like a Christoph Waltz. Yeah. You know, in some of the he's been in. You know, it's like kind of like oh, I'm a happy-go-lucky villain. But like when when shit gets real, it gets real. But this, he's just like, nope, I'm cold, I, I'm emotionless, uh, your kung fu is terrible, and now I will beat you to death with a fan. Right. <laughs> and he has those, like, dead eyes. Flag. Fans. Say, oh, say that again? So maybe that's why they didn't use the flag, because they had the fans. The fans, that's right. But he does this thing, too, where he's just got these dead eyes that he just got no mercy in them. Lifeless eyes. Black <laughs> eyes. Like, owl's eyes. <laughs> So this film, of course, was directed by the great Chang Che, and it was also written by him and Ni Kuang again. And, of course, let's just dive into our cast a little bit here. We've got, of course, Lu Feng as Yuan Ying Fei, the villain of the piece. And then, of course, Lo Meng was Guan Yun. And you know what, Patsy? It's really too bad that we didn't start this podcast 15 years ago because Lo Meng made his first U.S. appearance at an event in Philadelphia in 2007 where he received a Lifetime Achievement Award for his 30-plus year film career. I couldn't find the name of the event, but... That would have been awesome. Like, Yeah, that would have been so cool. Yeah. So I want to just talk about him a little bit. We've Every week we've been spotlighting one of the actors. Lo Meng was born Lo Hin Lam in Hong Kong on July 23rd, 1956. At the age of 13, he began his martial arts training, which he diligently continues to this day. He's a dedicated student of the Mantis style, and he developed an incredible physique despite never actually working out with weights. That was one of his you know, signature things was he never lifted weights, but he was the most buff of all the... Uh, you know, bulked out, I should say, of all the um, Venoms. Yeah, 
the most ripped. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, Bruce Lee's physique. Yeah. Except like his muscles, Lomang's had muscles on the muscles, you know? <laughs> yeah. He wasn't like, you know, uh, you know, small of stature the way uh, Bruce Lee was like, he is, you know, a, a bigger, you know, not like huge. He's not like Bolo Young, but right. Built, you know, kind of like, you know, he reminds me of his uh, a young Van Damme. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, where he's like, he's buff. He's not a, like a Sammo Hung who he's, you know, heavy, but can still do amazing flips. <laughs> right. And he's not like this huge monster like Bolo Young. Yeah. You know? <laughs> he's, you know, somewhere in the he's slightly he's not as shredded as van damme was in his heyday you know like blood sport van damme right he's like somewhere between uh van damme and uh and bruce lee like he's got the definition of bruce lee but like the size of uh of van damme exactly exactly and you know lo meng was introduced to the film industry by a mutual friend who was the the chauffeur of chang che and um, he started working in the accounting department, which I tried to picture, and I couldn't really picture that. <laughs> like him being just sort of clumsy and not being able to do anything with numbers. <laughs> or, or, you know, conversely, using like the long staff and like typing in all the numbers on his typewriter or his right. adding machine. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was, um, you know, Chang Che, because he, you know, would go into the accounting office every so often, he was impressed by Lowe's physique and his charisma. And, of course, not to mention his martial arts background, which, like we said, was the Mantis style, was his style of choice. But um, he also studied Choi Lee Foot and Taekwondo. So he he later attended training courses created for actors wanting to work at the uh, Changong Film Company before he joined the Shaw Studios. And... Um, he just <laughs> Chang Che decided to give Lo some bit parts and films, a few film projects before first wanting to give him a new stage name. Initially, he called him Lo Lia, meaning fierce or intense. But as time went on, Chang jokingly be- began to call him Mang, which means foolish or clumsy, because supposedly he once tripped over the wire of an air conditioner. So hence the the name Lo Mang stuck. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. And, of course, the Five Deadly Venoms was what launched his career, and he credits that, actually, uh, as his favorite of the films that he's done. And in the early 90s, he appeared in, which we mentioned this in a previous episode, John Woo's Hard Boiled, which teamed him back up with uh, two members of the V-Club, Ko Choi, a.k.a. Philip Kwok, and Wei Pai. And all told, Lowe's appeared in nearly 70 films and countless TV episodes, so he had an amazing career. Like Ip Man. Yes, that's right. He was in that too. I think he was in at least two of them, if not all three. Yeah, I haven't seen those yet. I gotta watch those too. Oh, I love me some Donnie Yen. Yeah. Like if you've seen him in Rogue One, uh it Oh yeah. You know where he takes out all the stormtroopers. Right. That's like one millionth of like how good he is. He has this one move where he starts punching people like, and he starts off slow and like, it turns into like a machine gun punch. He's so goddamn fast. <laughs> That's awesome. Like what people don't know about this guy, you know, not to get too far off topic, but he <laughs> trained Bruce Lee in real life, not Donnie Yen, but Ipman. Ipman was Bruce Lee's teacher. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So just to give you an idea of like Donnie Yen is playing Bruce Lee's teacher. It's yeah. There's a great scene in the third one where he fights Mike Tyson. <laughs> like it's not Mike Tyson the guy because like you know these take place in the 30s and 40s. Right. 
Um, but like Mike Tyson is the person he's fighting and it's a ridiculous fight. It's so good. Um, so you mean the real life Mike Tyson was an actor in the movie? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was playing a different character, but, uh, Don <laughs> oh, wow. Eaton does this one move, like when he's like kind of getting pumped up and he gets into this, uh, this crouching stance where he's balancing on one foot and he's got his, his, uh, right leg straight out. And his hands out in like a fighting stance, but he lowers himself in this crouch where he's balancing on the ball of his left foot and his ass is almost on the ground and he's perfectly balanced. Like he just sinks into this horse stance. That's unbelievable. <laughs> How are you doing that? That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I 1 million percent recommend Yip Man films because he is so good in it. Samo Hung's in a couple of them. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's excellent. Like there are some great fight scenes. I think, uh, Yen Wo Ping does the, uh, does the wire work, you know, who did, you know, tons of stuff, including, uh, what folks might be familiar with the, uh, crazy 88 scene in Kill Bill. Okay. Yeah. Uh, with, uh, Gordon Liu. Yep. So yeah, he's uh, th- th- there are some significantly awesome fight scenes. I think isn't so, there a Nip Man TV uh, show too? That I don't know because uh, I think I, I was looking for it on Netflix. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was looking for it on Netflix one time, and I, I'm watching it. And it says like you know episode one, episode two. I'm like, oh wait, this is not the movie. This is the TV show. Yeah, that that I haven't heard. I just know about the four films. But yeah, I, and he's also got a movie that just came out recently called uh, Enter the Fat Dragon where he plays an overweight martial artist and he's in a fat suit. Oh, that's hilarious. And I, yeah, but it looks amazing. But yeah, uh, just, just to kind of throw that out there and connect it to, uh, to our, our, uh, our guys here. Nice. Nice. So let's just round off our um, cast here. We've got Chang Sheng as he Fei, Sun Chan as Feng Jiaji, and Kuo Choi, AKA Philip Kwok, AKA Jared Padalecki's Asian cousin as Yang Zhu Feng. Now, we had a newcomer in this movie. His name was Wang Li, and he played Zhang Kiao. He was born in Hong Kong. Uh, He had been practicing martial arts since childhood, moved to Taiwan with his father when he was 15, and auditioned for Chang's film company. And Chang Che was so impressed by his performance, he signed him up as a contract actor. He went on to Hong Kong in 78 and joined the Shaw Brothers and appeared in a whole bunch of their films, including uh, Chang Che's Two Champions of Shaolin, The Ten Tigers of Kwang Tung, Flag of Iron, and House of Traps, which I think some of those we are going to cover as Venom Mob films. Uh, We've also got Annie Liu on. I'm sorry, Annie Luan Lai as Guan, which, uh, I'm sorry, she played Guan San, which was Guan Yun's sister. We had Wang Lai as Guan Yun's mother. And then Yu Tai Ping as Chief Lee. You, he was uh, Yuan Lin Fei's lackey. And he's, we've seen him before. He's, I always refer to him as the, the pointy-nosed actor that we've seen in some of the other films. And he plays a total dick here in this movie. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah he definitely is. Yeah. <laughs> Now, one thing that I find interesting... Still not as bad as Lu Fang. Oh, as bad as who? Not as bad as Lu Fang. Lu Fang's still, like, the worst. Oh, my God. Well, he was evil. The other guy was just a dick, you know? <laughs> yeah, I can see the, the the distinction there. So, apparently, this movie, Magnificent Ruffians, is, is technically part of a trio of Venom's movies. Not that they're sequels to each other, but they're kind of lumped together because they all take place in the same time period, which was the early 20th century. And... In each of the mo- each of these movies, they um the Venoms sort of play the same kind of character types where they're starving kung fu masters. Uh, I think the other two movies are Killer Army, which is also known as Rebel Intruders, 
and Daredevils, which is also known as Shaolin Daredevils, which I think that's the one we were going to do last time. So yes, um, I did see the trailer for that too. By the way, it looks really good. See, I like watch. I I like going into these without seeing the trailers or anything before, because uh, I don't want to. I don't look up anything. I just like okay, Venom mobs in it. I'll watch it. Like I don't right. need to. I don't want it like. <sighs> I don't want it to like cloud my judgment because I know there's going to be few things that we get in here. Like, you know, there's going to be, you know, something, you know, they're tropes, but I don't mind them because like the way they do them are, are great. Like I said, you know, somebody's going to get injured gravely and still manage to, you know, finish their bit of plot exposition, right. whether it's running 30 <laughs> miles or whether it's, you know, finishing a fight scene with a sword in his face or right. the other thing you're going to see is, you know, two separate groups or Oh, there's three or four guys and you know oh you know we're friends but we're poor and like we're doing this and you know so you know you have the the friendship angle and then the last thing you're going to see is a sudden end to the film and the you don't know exactly what happens at the end because it's ambiguous either guys are running away with you know their their various wounds or they just leap into the air and like that's where the film ends or like this one you know like oh let me pick you up you're my friend end of film right like did he get the medical attention he needed did he die in his friend's arms like what happened right did this go it just ends and the credits show up and it's just like okay i guess (laughs) (laughs) and you know what i agree with you i do the same thing i generally go in not knowing anything about the movies the only reason i saw the trailer was because i was trying to make sure it was the right one because i'm gonna buy the dvd for it and I think pretty much once I saw, okay, yeah, it's them in it, I stopped watching it. But I, I actually don't remember anything from the trailer except um, uh, they had, like, Mo Howard haircuts in it, I think. <laughs> That's amazing. So, you know, and it, it's just funny how they mention at the beginning of the movie, and that, like, confused me a little bit because we're used to these being taking place in, what, like the 17th century or something? And they were talking about, you know, well, there's trains and ships now and the world is changing, and uh, that got me I'd say, confused. Uh, it's it's varied, but I generally assume it's around the 1800s to early 1900s. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like I always thought it was like way, way further in the past. Oh, I may be I may be wrong because you know I'm trying to remember. Like China had gunpowder long before anybody else did. Oh yeah, they around the time of Marco Polo. When when was that? That was like the 15th century, 16th. Yeah. Century? So I mean, like they're talking about guns, but we never really see any other army using guns and we never see anything we never really see but if they're talking about trains you know obviously boats have been around forever but if they're talking trains you you're, you you got to think that they're in you know the mid 1800s early 1900s maybe yeah well my research said it was the early 20th century so they had guns i think did they display them in the movie i don't remember if they did or not i think they just talked about it yeah like we never really see it yeah because of you know budgetary restraints and also has nothing to do with the plot like it you know if you saw a train like that doesn't affect the the plot one way or the other right exactly rarely do we see me- means of transportation you know carriages or otherwise unless it's specific to the plot like you know when they're fixing them because they're a blacksmith and they refuse to fight or because that's where the gold is and like yeah. that's where you know like unless it's you know vital to the plot it's generally just you know training montages and, and you know these guys love to eat like they're always in restaurants and they're always eating. I mean, like given the amount of energy they expend, I don't blame them. Right. Like, <laughs> I'd want to be pounding dumplings all day long too. If I was, you know, putting in the work that they were like, I get, I get, you know, 
worked up and sweaty just <laughs> looking at these guys do their moves like whew, I am out of breath. I need a snack. Every and time I nap. watch these movies, I want to get Chinese food. I'm like, oh my god, that looks so yummy. <laughs> yeah, because but there's no way that like what we're getting is gonna be well, yeah. Like what they're oh, I would love to get Chinese food in China. Like yeah, that would especially be fun. They're eating, like oh, like what was the last one we watched? Where they're like, yeah, we have this and we have this and we have this and we have this and we have this. Like you know, <laughs> and this tofu. type of beef and this type of pork and this type of pork and this yeah. type of beef. It's like oh, all <laughs> of that sounds amazing. Except the tofu, they can hold the tofu. You know, if it's done right, uh, you know, I've I've had tofu from a place that. If you didn't know any better, you were eating chicken. Oh, interesting. Yeah, buffalo tofu. Hmm. So, I mean, but that was close to twenty years ago. <laughs> but it's funny too. Like they didn't in the last movie as well. They don't. The wait staff doesn't come out with a tray and take all the plates off and put it on the table. They literally bring the whole top of the table out, already set and ready to go, and just sit it on the existing table. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's pretty handy. Yeah. Like, you know, quick cleanup. You would think that hopefully the doorways are wide enough because otherwise if you turn it to the side to get through, forget it. Everything's going down. Yeah, you got to be careful with that. <laughs> hey, cats and kittens, do you remember the 50s jukeboxes, hot rods, malt shops, and sock hops? No, not really. Oh, well, do you remember that TV show Happy Days? You know, Fonzie and Richie and all like that? A, sit on it, etc. Kind of. Then join us for These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means. Find us at thesedaysareours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square. You're sure you don't remember sock hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Stadium. One thing I loved about this movie too was the the groovy '70s soundtrack. It really, um, it, it gave it a at least for me, it gave it a different uh, feel to the film. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you definitely had a different feel because of the uh, the way. <laughs> the way the music played i was like okay you know you know they're uh, they're about to fight but you know if you know a bunch of ladies came out at the same time like you know <laughs> i could see the the with the music yeah i could see the the movie go in this direction too and the theme song that would crop up every once in a while it reminded me of the odd couple theme by neil hefty <laughs> a little bit yeah which was interesting. I thought that was an interesting choice for it, but I, I loved it. I thought it was really entertaining. I kind of want the soundtrack for this. So I don't think it exists, but 
You just got to be careful, you know, if you're downloading this movie because, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's a movie about the escort business. It's like, whoa, hey, wrong. (laughs) Whoopsie. So you're going to dig this soundtrack. (laughs) So the Chinese title for this movie translates as Selling Life Young Men, which basically means that when a person works hard, he's basically selling his life for that job. And it can also refer to all the young men trying to find work, as well as those who die trying to get work with you on. (laughs) So and of course, the Magnificent Ruffians refers to the four streetwise friends who appear to be ruffians at first, but turns out they're all good men. And uh, the film was also known as Destroyers and Destroyers of the Five Deadly Venoms. So obviously that was a clear marketing ploy in the Western world to get people to see this movie. And they really were kind of ruffians in this because they, <laughs> they'd eat a meal and then they'd smash all the plates and cups. Well, usually because they were getting beat up. No, but there was the one time where they were celebrating and they literally just started going crazy throwing the cups and plates everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They had that, they had that going for them too. <laughs> Which just seems excessive. I guess that, you know, in certain in certain places that that's, you know, considered to be, you know, like we saw in the Thor films, you know, or the, at least the first one. It's like, yeah, this is great. Smash the glass on the ground. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, I get that's uh, like a sign of, of uh, really enjoying your meal. Right. <laughs> It'll be your last one because you destroyed all the crockery. Yeah, like, what are you going to eat on? Right. Uh, that's why you know those weird restaurants that are like, yes, I'm serving you shoe- soup in a shoe. <laughs> you know what that was cool, too, was, um, you know, we got to see a lot of, you know, Chang Shang and Philip Kwok's skill here and, and Lu Fang with the golden spear. But we got to see more of Sun Chen's kicking style, which uh, up to now, we hadn't really seen it quite a bit or used as extensively as we saw in Shaolin Rescuers. So I thought this was a nice, nice to see him again. Yeah, I and mean, I'm just, I'm just happy to see Lu Fang. Yeah, you know, and and Lo Mang, not Lu Fang. Yeah, yeah, Lo Lo Mang and and all these guys. Like I just, I just like seeing them. I just, I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> it's um. Did you know that um, Lu Fang created some of those um the moves he did with the spear? He created those in real life for the movie. Oh, that's that's pretty cool. That I didn't know. Yeah. He made up a whole bunch of techniques to go with it. And I don't know if it came from the script and they said, well, can you can you do this? Or he said, wait, I can do this. And they kind of wrote it into the script. So I'm not quite sure how that worked. But the other thing, too, when we're talking about the music, um, getting back to that for a second here, I kept hearing the Spaceballs drum beat throughout the film. I kept waiting for the guy with the white helmet to be in the corner banging on the giant drum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, that is a very distinctive drum beat. I've heard this several places before. Right. <laughs> oh, man. And there was one scene where um, Chang Sheng had to jump out of the restaurant, and we had mentioned them earlier, the um, those vertical poles the, with the Jupiter poles, but he landed mm-hmm. perfectly. Unlike in Child and Rescue, was none of them could do it except for uh, one, one of them was the only one who could do it. Um, I can't remember now. Yeah. I can see his face. Was it Sun Chin? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What? He was the student. Yeah. And um, you know, he's running around, he's hopping on it, and then the other guy falls in and gets it collapses on him like a Venus flytrap. Oh yeah. Which I thought was hilarious. But in this one it was Chang Sheng who did it. He, they yeah. told him he had to leave out the window. <laughs> he's like, oh, Yeah, okay. out the window. You can't go down the stairs. You know, yeah. I'm not gonna you know, we're not gonna beat you up because you couldn't pay. And they're like, Oh, this is great. Let's come to this place every day. Yeah. <laughs> Like that might only work for a certain amount of time. It may not work forever. Right, right. And we can't go through one of these movies without commenting on the dubbing. Did you find that Philip Kwok's dub was just not good? 
He sounded like he was meek and nerdy, I thought. This one, you know, I was thinking about that as well. Um, I didn't think this one was one of the weaker ones. Yeah. I thought this was bad. I actually thought that the voices sounded familiar. I was like, oh, it seems like they've used these uh, dubbing actors, you know, before. Like, it, it sounded familiar. Yeah. Yeah, and I've heard some of, yeah, some, like some of the ones that were used for Venoms used for other characters in different movies. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. I think Chang Sheng has been the most consistent. I've noticed his voice has been the same guy doing it for quite a few of these films. But the others, they keep changing it up. Yeah, they usually, they usually do a good job. Like, you know, you will get the occasional, like, oh, my God, why does he sound like Sweet Chuck from uh, Police Academy? <laughs> so you see this huge jacked guy, like, you know, just absolutely shredding dudes with a sword. And he's like, oh, I'm going to beat you up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, it's so funny. Now, what was up with the the bath scene where they get to go to take this bath, all of them at uh, Lu Fang's house, and there's all these chicks in there, and they come running out. They're like, "No, there's women in there." I'm like, "Dude, go back! Why, why are you kicking the women out?" <laughs> maybe they're trying to, uh, you know, maintain their chastity. You know, maybe that was you know kind of frowned upon because we never really see anything like that in any of these any of these movies there's generally not uh, a romantic interest right you know or if there is like there's never any like you know pda at you know at all usually it's kind of like what we see in this it's like oh i really like that girl i should probably murder her brother so she'll go out with me right. like <laughs> that is not the way to do things why don't you try flowers or something first like before <laughs> like Maybe maybe try a little uh, a little romance. What, right. Bird, romantic. <laughs> I think the reason for that uh, for that scene was because you know Chang Che always emphasized his themes of brotherhood and camaraderie in his films. So because then they're all like arm in arm going into the into the bath and they're like playing like little kids, which I think was another angle too. Is that they weren't very mature to begin with. They were they were ruffians, you know. Yeah, and you know, there's always that sense of. Uh, like you said, camaraderie and brotherhood with all these films because these guys respect each other so much, especially the the last one that we just did, you know, the, the guys fighting each other over the tofu and like doing all these different moves to each other. And, you know, like there may not be like, oh, I like you. You're my friend. But there's definitely like, oh, hey, I know you. I respect you. And we, you know, we spar against each other here and there because we're always testing each other. And, you know, it's a lot of fun. And this is what we like to do. Yeah. Exactly. Except, unless you're uh, Chief Lee, because then Lu Fang just beats the shit out of him, just so so the others will think that Lo Meng did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, because he's a big old jerk. Right. <laughs> I thought it was great though, because the other guy was such a dick. Anyways, I was like, good. <laughs> Even though it worked to um, Lo Meng's uh, disadvantage, which, by the way, him being a mama's boy was freaking hilarious. You know, he's like, no, mom, I'm not fighting. I'm just practicing with my friends. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. And she's like whapping him with her stick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It just reminded me of. Um, like, that's pretty funny. It reminded me of. Um, what's his name on uh, uh, on Big Bang Theory? Um, oh, my God. Which one? Uh, Sheldon? No, the one whose mother was always yelling at him. Oh, uh, um, he came with L. Leonard. Leonard, that's right. No, not Leonard. Um, yeah, his mom was always. Oh, oh, oh. Um, 
Harold. Harold Wallowitz, yeah. Yes, yeah, Wallowitz. That's right. <laughs> the one who ended up marrying the Rouch. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, oh my god, that was just so funny. Where that's all I could think of. <laughs> Except you saw the mother in this. You never saw her on The Big Bang Theory. Yeah, and uh, she ended up passing away. Yeah, yeah. The actress died in real life, so they killed her off in the show. Yeah, which was kind of sad, but yeah. You know, it makes sense. Uh, not quite as sad as what happened in the movie here. Cause yeah, after... this, this was <laughs> a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this one. Um, again, I haven't had a bad time with any of the, the Venom movies. Like, even the one that I enjoyed the least, which was Life Gamble. Right. Was still pretty good. Oh, yeah. It, that one was just convoluted. That's what worked against it. If it was a little bit more, you know, streamlined and you could understand better what was going on, it would have been, you know, e- equal to these movies. You know, what we should have done was we should have, uh, you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but we should have kind of paired Life Gamble with Ace High. <laughs> we had that theme going. That's right. That's right. Which we will get into uh, in a little bit. But yeah. I was thinking about that earlier. I was like, man, this would have gone really well. with. The... But that's what happens when you don't watch the trailer and don't look at any of the stuff. Well, although up to this point, <laughs> we, they, we've kind of lucked out because they have, for the most part, matched in themes and sometimes even sequences. You know, it's like this is the first time where it really didn't. They, the movies, I didn't find any similarities between them. Well, see, we just we just we, uh, we did them just slightly out of order. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's probably because we didn't get to do the last one or number five, I should say. So, yeah, so I would, I would recommend to people if they're going to kind of follow in our footsteps and do uh, this type of thing where they they want to pair up movies like that definitely pair up ace high with uh life gamble yeah because you'll you'll see the same central theme uh kind of running through both of them oh yeah absolutely now one thing i did not expect in this movie at all was lu fang getting the explosive pole in his chest oh yeah like that you know, I was like, why is he switching the, the two poles out? Like, what is that going to do? Like, you know, is one of them made out of, like, you know, breadsticks? Like, you know, he's going to go to block a sword and get cut in half or something? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, that's what I thought. It was crazy like that, you know. And instead, it was not that. It was, you know, he was like, oh, I filled it with explosives. And, yeah. you know, due to vast engineering knowledge, I knew that if I did it this way, it's like, What? He didn't know. And what if he hit him with the the other way around? He would have got exploded. Philip Quack. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he did it at the end. Like, so, like, he caught the, the, the end of the staff, the small end of the staff with his chest. And then when he banged on the end of it. Boom. Like, and I don't know what that move was supposed to be other than, like, I'm going to shatter your sternum. Right. Because he even, like, well, if I die, that'll be my fault. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I don't mind if I'm dead. That means I screwed up, and I would have deserved it. It's like, wow, you have a very different outlook on things than I do. Uh, it's the old exploding poles trick. <laughs> oh, the oldest trick in the book. I should have seen this one coming. <laughs> oh, man, but I, I audibly yelled when I saw that. I went, no! It's like I did not expect that he was going to die from, from sparring with him. I even kind of yeah, forgot I, I, that he, they switched the poles. Like, I knew they did, but I, I didn't really think beyond, like, why they did that, you know? I, I figured it was going to be something, you know, like I said, like, oh, yeah. we uh, a fatal weakness in it or it's hollowed out. Yeah. He's going to hit somebody with it and or he's going to block something. But the sword's going to go right through and kill him instead. And like, that's how he's going to get 
uh, taken out of the equation. Yeah. And then it not, was, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, <clears throat> not quite what happened, but. Right. <laughs> oh, man. And then the mother and the daughter hang, hang themselves. And it was pretty much the mother's idea because she's like, well, I'm going to take you to a happy place. I was like, oh, yep. good God, no. <laughs> that was some dark shit, like, right there. It's like, whoa, this got real yeah. very quickly. Yeah. And then uh, Philip Kwok and Chang Sheng decide to team back up again and and um, disguise themselves as ghosts and basically oh, scare yeah. the shit out of Chief Lee. And then the uh, the uh, <laughs> the whole thing with the rope. Yeah. Like, it's like, all right, is this like Cirque du Soleil? Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, that was weird. But then they got them into that move where uh, Chang Sheng had the two swords in the front and uh, Philip Kwok had the pole in the back and then that just basically killed him. Which it wasn't really clear how it killed him, but I guess the, he got stabbed. Yeah, that'll learn him. And did you notice he didn't Quack didn't get a new pole? He used the same exploded one through the rest of the film. Yeah, well, he didn't know where his was. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, he had to he had to find it. It's like, oh, where'd my good one go? See, I was expecting them to kind of like overhear him say something like, "Ah, oh, it certainly was good that you know," because you know, like the classic villain monologuing as he's walking down the street, right? Like, ah, it certainly was a good thing that, you know, switched those two poles and made one of them explosive. So it killed that guy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, you know, right before he strolled in to uh, go see the sister. Right. Yeah. The boss wants to see you. Oh, not answering. I'll just come in. It's like, (laughs) yeah, I don't think that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, and he basically said something to that, like, that was really creepy. It was, he didn't actually use these words, but it was something to that effect with, was like, I hope you're decent. You know, like, he was going to walk in on them no matter what. <laughs> yeah, he was He was going either way. He's like, oh, are you decent? I yeah. hope not. I'm coming in. Yeah. that That's why I maintain he was so such a creepy dick. But that whole scene where they were pretending to be, go, be the ghosts, I thought that was really creepy. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I also... <laughs> Unless I kind of misread that, like, it seemed like they had also put, like, uh, their scalps on. Because I don't know where they got those <laughs> wigs. Notice. Uh, yeah, I wonder and the same thing. Threw the corpses <laughs> on the ground at him. Yeah. Yeah, that was really creepy. <laughs> Do you think this is disrespectful? No, it's in the name of vengeance. Right. We'll just throw their dead bodies at you. Yeah, let me let me heave these bodies at you and wear their hair. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have time to get to the wig store. Oh my god. Yeah, it gets a lot darker when you think about it like yeah. that. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Unless they were like under the sheets controlling them like marionettes. Well, that's initially what I thought they were doing. I'm like, oh man, they're using the dead bodies like that, and then they, you know, they I pull the sheets better. off. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> well, I suppose not. <laughs> which which of those things is less like creepy and offensive and disrespectful to the dead? I I can't imagine they scalped them. They must have had the ladies of that age. They probably had wigs in their bedroom or something. Yeah, but I mean, they had to find the wigs awfully quickly. I know that was that was a bit of a stretch, <laughs> but it worked. In terms of being an effective scene. <laughs> I wonder if they, they debated that on set and Chang Che was probably like, oh, who cares? It's going to scare the crap out of the audience. 
No, oh, no, no. This happens all the time. Haven't you ever seen like any Disney movie? They're always scalping people and <laughs> killing people and <laughs> tossing dead bodies around. <laughs> yeah, it's just the way it is. But, you know, as we get towards the end of the film, I obviously um, we, we had talked about that uh, training sequence at the beginning of the, the show today. And I again, I really loved that. I, I loved seeing the way they just sort of imagined what he would do so they could figure it out. Because it also it set it up to make it clear to the audience what was going on, too. You could you, know, you can have the restaurateur tell them about it, but actually seeing them practice it beforehand was was really fun. Yeah. Like getting to see it with the the you know, specter superimposed. Yeah. And the thing about that scene too, is it set it up for me personally. I don't know how you felt walking into this end fight, but I've got to say of all the films that we've covered so far, I don't think I've ever been so nervous going into a final fight as I was in this movie because the training sequence set it up because they weren't even sure if they were going to be able to defeat him. And up to this point, he'd pretty much killed everybody in the movie. So I was like worried (laughs) going into this end fight. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't think that they were both going to make it out or, you know, it might have been, you know, kind of like the end of, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but like where they all run away at the end, but they're like full of arrows. Oh, yeah. Was that, uh, geez, Master, not Master Avengers. I think it was Shaolin Rescuers, wasn't it? Where the two, um, Philip Kwok and Lo Meng had arrows in their chests and they were, they were going to stand against the army and Chang Shang and the other guy ran off. Yeah. I think, th- I think that was it. I don't know. They all, they kind of blend sometimes after a while. Yeah. It, it takes a while, you know, when, when you're like trying to, it's like, okay, let me think, you know, cause we also do these a couple of weeks apart. Right. You know, we, and we both do multiple shows in between. So, yeah. <laughs> But that whole end fight scene was just so amazing, and it was in, it was cool because you could tell the characters, uh, you know, um, Phil Kwok and Chang Shang were they were getting tired and they trade off fighting mm-hmm. him because I kept going, why aren't they attacking him all at once? And it was obvious that they were exhausted because they'd been fighting. What was it like a twenty minute fight sequence? Yeah, it was a long fight sequence, and you know, as I've pointed out. Uh you know, in the past, like if no one has, you know, if you've never done sparring or anything like this, it takes a lot out of you very quickly. Oh, yeah. You know, even off topic, um, what's his name? Uh, Donald O'Connor in Singing in the Rain. He does that whole sequence, make him laugh. And he's like mm-hmm. literally runs up the wall and does a backflip and does all this stuff. I guess um, it took them like several days to shoot that. And then he was flat out for like two weeks. He was so exhausted from that. Oh, yeah. it It takes a lot out of you and they they don't just you know have like this you know quick easy little fight scene that's like well choreographed like it's a long long fight scene and it's one of many oh yeah yeah and it's amazing how many of these movies they churned out in like one year i mean i think the last two were also in 1979 so it's it's just crazy that these guys when did the hell did they eat and sleep you know well, they ate while they made the movie, oh, obviously. <laughs> Can we do the restaurant scene again? <laughs> I think it would, I, if that was me, and it's like, oh man, this food's amazing. I'm going to purposely screw my lines up so we have to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like the fake food they have on, you know, movies and TV shows today. <laughs> yeah. But I, I always love it, though, when, when you know, Kwok and Chang team up, especially in end fights. They've done this a couple times now, and I, I, I love those two 
together, fighting together. It's just fun to watch their styles. You know, oh, yeah, absolutely. I think both There's of them at one point fun. separately, both of them did like a triple backflip. Yeah, it was it was some uh, there was some crazy shit that they did. It was uh, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. So, all right, Patsy. Final thoughts on the magnificent ruffians. Uh, I really liked it. Um, I like the introduction with the new, the new weapons. Uh, the double Chinese broadsword was very fun. The uh, pole, especially because that's something that I have trained with the uh, the long the long stick. Um, you know, like that that one mover was just kind of like spinning it around and around and around. Like, oh yeah. A lot of fun, um, you know, because that's it's like, oh, I know how to do that. I've done that before, yeah. not as well, but I've done that before. <laughs> um, and it's funny because the, uh, the 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 same moves that you would use for the uh, the long staff there are the same moves you would use for that long sword, the golden sword there. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna um, kind of use very similar motions and, you know, hand over hand, like trying to, you know, when you're twirling it around. Yeah. That's uh, cool. But yeah, I, I really like this one. Um, you know, like I said, the only thing I didn't understand was like, Oh, nobody does Kung Fu anymore. Yeah. Hey, do you do Kung Fu? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to murder you. Right. <laughs> if you're going to kill everybody that does it, why is anyone going to bother doing it? Right. <laughs> And I love, though, how he recognized that they were countering his techniques. He's like, ah, so you know all my techniques, but do you know this one? And it was like, you know, sun flying behind the moon or something, whatever it was. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm going to totally do a different thing. Ha ha, you didn't know I was going to do that. <laughs> Take that. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed this movie, too. I thought it was great fun. And, you know, I loved Lu Fang being even more evil in this. It's like, how much more evil can this guy get? He had a she'd have been twirling it. Yeah. <laughs> He needs a mustache to twirl, too. <laughs> but, you know, the build-up to the final fight really had me tense, as we just talked about. And, you know, and like we've said before, too, you never know who's going to get killed off in these films. Uh, so I, I love that. I love the fact that, you know, nobody has, like, this ridiculously thick plot armor where it's like, you know, they might go the whole movie and get killed at the end or they might get killed in the middle. They might get killed 10 minutes in. Like you never know. Yeah. Yeah. It was shocking. So definitely, I definitely recommend this movie. If you can find it, people, it's, it's well worth it to add to your collection of Venom mob films. So we're going to take a break here. And then next up, when we come back is the spaghetti Western ace high from 1968, the sequel to God forgives. I don't. Hey folks. I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts, podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at podcast upload and don't help promote your podcast. 
Well, PodSurf makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on podparadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodSurf's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I, I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcasts on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out. We come from the retro future. We want you to be nostalgic for what's to come. A new channel and distribution network for smart people with bad taste featuring content from Church of the Subgenius, Creature Features, Cinema, Insomnia, Sleazy P. Martini and Guar, Troma, Corey Maccabee, Horror, Sci-Fi, Saturday Morning Cartoons, Midnight Movies, and Assorted Trash We Love. Add our channel, OSI 74, to your Roku player or visit osi74.com. All systems go. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. A very simple game. Queen for you, king for me. I win. Of course, the ace is always high. You like it? Now you like it? 
ace high is as high as the West can get. He'd shoot him up high and knock him down high, where a fist beats a full house and a bullet beats an ace. Eli Wallach is Cacopolis, the con man, a thief who steals from thieves. Here we are, just the two of us, all alone. Searching for the friends who betrayed him 15 years ago, his lips lie, his smile kills. Want to go upstairs? Hello, friend. Only his gun speaks the truth. My grandfather always used to say, money corrupts man, it softens him. So to keep you young and pure, I think I'll take everything. The game is ace high, crooked as the men who play it, deadly as the grudge they've held for 15 years. I warned you. For the guns they now hold. It's gonna be Charles play. Leave it to me. Leave it to me, huh? Buddy, I didn't force you to come. Ace High is high on adventure. High on everything that turned the West wild. Ladies and gentlemen, place your bets. Place Ace your High, when all the chips are down. Thirteen. Thirteen. And everything rides on the luck of the draw. I want music. Clown. He wants music. Need anything else? Spencer in Ace High. All right, I will uh, just jump in. So this movie is, uh, like uh, Rigor said, 1968, uh, called Ace High, but in Italian it's Equatro dell'Ave Maria, which literally translates as the four of the Hail Mary, which I, I don't get it, but uh, especially because really there's only, no, th- well, no. All right. I get it now. Okay. So uh, this was uh, written and directed by Giuseppe Colizzi, uh, starring Terrence Hill, Bud Spencer, Bud Spencer and Eli Wallach, uh, who looked really familiar to me. And maybe it was just because he kind of looked and sounded like a, a cowboy uh, buddy Hackett. Um. <laughs> That's all I could. Uh, that's all I could hear. That's all I could see. He even had like a little bit of the bulbous nose that Hackett had. Oh, that's funny. But you know, I don't know. Uh, so the first film in the trilogy is God Forgives I Don't, which we did uh, last week. Uh, ended with Cat and Hutch, played by uh, Terrence Hill and um, Bud Spencer, uh, driving away in a wagon which they possessed, uh, in which they possessed the gold from a train robbery by Bill San Antonio. Who had apparently died in a dynamite blast. I, it, he was right on top of the dynamite when it blew up. So <laughs> I say it was a little more than apparent, unless you know, you know, some sort of divine intervention came into play. 
Ace High begins with Cat and Hutch arriving in El Paso, where they unsuccessfully try to claim the bounty for Bill uh, from his last earthly remains, which is just his boots and hat, because they don't have any uh, body or body parts, uh, because they didn't have a sponge with them to <laughs> soak up his remains. My only issue with this opening is that it kind of neglects the fact that Hutch was shot in the goddamn head at the end of this movie <laughs> and needed medical attention. And I don't know if you're aware of how the Wild West was, but it's not as if, you know, help was just around the corner. <laughs> uh, but he seemed to be fine. <laughs> so back again, they're in El Paso. Uh, so they go to the bank manager, Harold, whom uh, Bill in the first film disclosed as his partner in setting up the robberies because uh, they would split the insurance money and announce themselves as Bill. They're like, hey, tell, tell, the, tell the guy Bill San Antonio was here. After using physical force, they are received and convince him, again using force, to issue them a cashier's check to be paid out in gold. You never get to see the bank manager. You see, like, the accountant guy that's there. And I will say he does some pretty solid acting just with, like, they kind of zoom in close on his eyes behind his glasses so his eyes are magnified a bit. And he's just kind of, like, looking back and forth, like, do I do anything or do I just stick to my work? And while he's doing that, you see, like, this big blotch of ink dripping from his pen <laughs> onto the ledger which i thought was an excellent shot yeah you know kind of a throwaway thing but i thought it was like a really cool shot and they come back out and they're like oh everything's fine you know like again you want to talk about you know bad dubbing <laughs> this movie has a bit of that the banker visits condemned man kikopolis who is uh, supposed to be hanged the next day and offers to help him escape if he gets the money back and we find out that you know, he, uh, there's some shady doings going on. So that night, the deputy is knifed by two men who let Kakopoulos out, takes a dead man's gun and shoots the other two who were there, then pours himself a foot bath and tests the dead man's boots to find a pair that fit. He then pays a visit to the bank manager, reminds him that he and the other two, uh, he and two others put him in jail for 15 years and on his release, framed him for murder with a stolen knife, the same one that was used to kill the deputy. And it was his knife, but they had stolen it from him you know, this is apparently the long con because they're like, okay, we're going to keep you in jail for 15 years just in case somebody uncovers our uh, insurance scam. And uh, then we're going to stab this guy in the back. And it's, it's weird. <laughs> so consequently, he wants uh, guarantees that he will be not, he will not be tricked again. And Harold throws a knife, but Kikopoulos swings the chair. So it strikes the back, then swings back around and shoots the manager, adding that is guarantee enough. So, that's the bank manager that got roughed up at the beginning because we don't see him in that opening scene. So now dressed as a peon on a donkey, Kakopoulos meets Cat and Hutch and robs them. You know, and his dialogue is fantastic. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, money just leads to temptation. You know what? I'll take all of it so that you boys stay pure and innocent. Like, it's so <laughs> great. Uh, they follow his trail south to Mexico and encounter people to whom he has given money and a high-wire performer, Thomas, and his assistant that he offered money to as well. And the, the high-wire artist you might recognize from subsequent Star Trek films. Yep. <laughs> uh, especially, I recognize him most notably from uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And you had pointed that out to me, uh, Rigor, and I was very excited to see that because I was like, oh, that's my favorite Star Trek film. It, it was um, his voice. I heard it, and I'm like, I know that, I know that, and then it just popped into my head who he was. Yeah, and like you, if you hear his voice, and you're like, 
wait, uh, his name is uh, Brock Peters. Right. Brock Peters, who played uh, Admiral Cartwright in uh, in um, Star, Star Trek, Trek 4. Four. Yeah. Or Star Trek. Uh, and he's the uh, high wire performer in this one. And uh, of course, you know, bad guys got a bad guy. So, of course, the, uh, the young lady who is Brock's partner is going around, you know, passing the hat, you know, collecting money. But, you know, and this might be, I think, the first time we have seen um, in any of the spaghetti westerns we've watched any black characters, right? Or at least any black characters of consequence, because generally we do see them there, you know, sweeping or you know relegated to whatever roles that they would have had in the in the old westerns. Um, but these folks actually get lines, and they are important parts of the plot, which is nice to see, especially in 1968. So somebody grabs grabs the young lady and, you know, Cat comes out and punches the dude in the face. And then, you know, he and Hutch and Brock Peters' character come down and decide, you know, enough is enough. We're going to uh, teach you guys a lesson. And uh, he tries to draw on, on, on Cat, but Cat throws a uh, a knife into his holster and pins the pins the uh, the gun. The gun, yeah, into the holster. And uh, Brock Peters' character is named Thomas. He's a high wire performer and, the, you know, he's he's very grateful for the help. But they're like, oh, no, we know you could have taken care of him. Like, we're just, you know, happy to be here. So. Yeah, so uh, Thomas and his assistant are offered money. Uh, so they end up catching up with uh, Kako during uh, a fiesta that he has paid for with their fifty thousand dollars in gold because he keeps throwing money away. He's very philanthropic. Uh, while Cat is thrown away looking for him elsewhere, Kako, playing a joke on Hutch, appears before him and, in a quieter place, tells him about Harold and the other two, quote, friends who shot his horse so he got caught after a bank robbery, which is a double dick move. Like, that right. horse was innocent. Like, I don't care. If you want to shoot people, that's fine. Leave the animals alone. Right. <laughs> then they framed him for murder. He says that he will get back their money, including what he has spent, if... Hutch helps him collect on his debts with the remaining two. So the first one is Paco, who is a, quote, revolutionary, shown presiding over a kangaroo court condemning men to death for, quote, not fighting for country and freedom. This men capture Kakopoulos and Hutch, but Cat enlists help from other revolutionaries. I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, I'm sure. Kangansiero, uh, by telling about Kakopoulos' treasure. Together they defeat Paco's men, and Paco is killed by Kakopoulos who in his wrath forgets to make him give back any money. Classic blunder. <laughs> After some pillaging by the Kangan Sierra starts another kangaroo court that executes people for fighting for country and freedom. So the opposite of what was going on in the first place. And Kakopoulos is jailed until he tells where his treasure is. Kako attempts to escape by lulling the guards to sleep by telling the story of his heritage. His grandfather was a Greek who married a young Cherokee woman. And his father was one of their children. How his father raised his family in a small mining town until he was mysteriously murdered. Now his grandfather, carrying little Kako, had to take his son's his own son's body back to his own tribe. I'm getting bored just reading that, so I can't blame him for falling asleep. But that was the whole point. Hutch and Cat then help Kakopoulos escape, but he shoots off their saddles, quoting his grandfather that one partner is too little and two are too many. They ambush the last two men. Uh, of the pursuing Kangan Sierra uh, and take their horses. So again, Kako is being a dick. Uh, <laughs> and now follow him into the in the opposite direction, encountering dead Kangan Sierra men along the way. The last ones with their leader just outside of Memphis. Uh, I'm guessing this is not Memphis, Tennessee. Because right. 
that would have been a hell of a ride. <laughs> so there they find Kako washing dishes in a saloon together with the acrobat and his assistant. So Thomas and his assistant. Because in this town, people are only interested in gambling, sustained by the fact that Kakopoulos has lost all of his money while he was looking for Drake, who is the third partner. So Cat and Hutch visit Drake's casino. Hutch loses all his money while Cat spots the crouper, croupier sorry, looking at a hole in the ceiling. They put up Hutch to win money in a prize fight, buy weapons, and give the rest to Kikopoulos with instructions for him to show up with them at the casino tomorrow. That night, with some acrobatic prowess, Thomas and Cat gain entrance to a room in the attic of the casino where there is a peak hole down to the roulette table and a voice tube down to a basement room where a magnet can guide the roulette ball. Cat, Thomas, and Hutch take position in the two rooms. Kikopoulos, however... Seeks the company of a saloon girl, that's a nice way of saying that, and wakes up in the morning robbed of his cash. He hastily replenishes it by forcibly involving a bill collector in a card game that Cacophilus quotes, wins. <laughs> yeah, I love that, that scene. It's like, oh, here we're going to play this game. You have a three and I have a king. I win. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have a queen and I have a two. I win again. It's like, wait, what? That's an old W.C. Fields routine. Yeah. <laughs> so... He finally enters the casino where he repeatedly puts down a number, Black 13, breaks the bank with a $360,000 win. So he puts it down, he puts 50 bucks down, and gets 1750 Because it's 35 to 1. So, bam, 1750 Then hits it again, leaves the 1750 on 13 you know, because he's also trying to expose the cheating. Hits again, and then he's like, yeah, let it ride. And they're like, we can't cover that. And I'm like, well, what's the max? He's like, ten grand. He's like, okay, so I'll leave ten grand. <laughs> <laughs> so Drake and his men arrive to confront Kikopoulos. Drake being played by the incomparable Kevin McCarthy, who you might know from, uh, let's see, UHF, uh, um, the Invasion uh, of the Body Snatchers, the original. Yeah, and Inner Space. That's I kept wanting to call it Dead Space, but that's oh. a video game. Uh, Inner Space. Yeah, and. Tons of other things like this guy's been around forever, you know, like the original invasion of the body snatchers was like 55, 56, somewhere yeah. in there. Yeah. Like guy's been around forever. So if you saw him or heard his voice, cause he looks and sounds the same throughout his entire career, right. <laughs> the man didn't change. <laughs> like his hair was white in 1968. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so they show up. And uh, Drake and his men show up and confront Kakopoulos, leading to a showdown. The opposing parties wait for the roulette ball to stop. All the customers lie down on the floor in a, in a Vietnamese waltz, which is success, suggested by Kakopoulos. Drake's men are shot and he is wounded and taken by the vengeful customers who realize they have been swindled for many, many years. Kakopoulos faints from the shootout, but only his arm was wounded and he leaves together with Cat and Hutch. And, uh, and, Thomas and his uh, his lady friend. So I have a um, and well, I think I have an answer to one of your questions from the beginning, where um, the whole thing about Hutch being shot in the head at the beginning of this one, I thought some time had taken place because at the very very beginning they were kind of talking about having their cut of the money. I don't think they ran off with all the money; they got a reward. Three hundred thousand in the in the case with them when they were bringing it back to that bank. Oh, that's true. Huh? That's a good point. Hmm. Oh, well, Adam, they just, you know, 
He just forgot about the head injury, which would happen if you had a head injury. <laughs> you know, my brother-in-law walked into the room while I was watching the movie, and he's like, hey, that's the guy that played Bluto on Popeye. I'm like, no, no, it looks like him, but it's not. <laughs> very, yeah, very, very close. Yeah. But yeah, I could I could definitely see how uh, how you would confuse the two of them. Right. So this film was both directed and written by, uh, as you said, Giuseppe Calizzi. And some of the story elements, uh, especially the, the grand finale set around the gambling table, was taken from an American novel called The Hoods by Harry Gray. And apparently it was Calizzi's favorite novel. He actually brought it, uh, two years earlier, he brought it to the attention of Sergio Leone, who had done the famous Spaghetti Western trilogy with Clint Eastwood. And um, actually he was on the set of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So Leone, of course, you know, used it as a base a basis for his other film, Once Upon a Time in America, or his other, one of his other great westerns. But that also answers your question too, where you think you had seen uh, Eli Wallach as Kakopoulos before. That's because he played Tuco, who was the ugly in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which I I think you, I'm pretty sure you said you haven't seen that yet. Yeah, I've not seen that, but he just he seemed familiar. And again, I think it might be the the Buddy Hackett thing, like he yeah. just from me of buddy hackett like it's it's weird like he's got that similar voice the similar like line delivery yeah because uh, lines weren't overdubbed or at least they weren't overdubbed that much i think it was more hill and uh spencer right and he's kind of an imp in this movie too you know he's he's just sort of this good-natured almost lovable con man you know like a like a almost like a trickster yeah yeah getting what he wants no matter what he does right and he very and we have we will cover the good bad the good the bad and the ugly but he very much channeled his inner uh tuco which was the name of the character in that movie and uh, there's a lot of similarities between the, the characters uh except in that one tuco was a mexican in this one he's greek so <laughs> i mean you know you know back then you know there were a lot of uh a lot of um, questionable casting choices that were made at the time. Right. I mean, John Wayne was Genghis Khan. Right. So, <laughs> hey, I'm Genghis Khan, Pilgrim. It's like, <laughs> wow, what a convincing accent. Are you sure that's not Lawrence Olivier? Right. Speaking <laughs> of Lawrence Olivier, he was Othello that's in right. Black. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, a lot man. of questions, a lot of even uh, Ringo. You know, disguising yeah. himself as a Mexican with the red paint. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, you know, Eli yeah, Wallach, he's... <laughs> you know, Eli Wallach is considered one of the greatest character actors ever to appear. And he was also in... Uh, he was Calvera in The Magnificent Seven, which I think you said you saw that, right? That one I've seen, but it's been... Oh, okay. It's minute i would have to rewatch that but i think i would like to watch that one again and yeah and he's you just... know if we do when we when we do that one we should pair it with uh uh the seven samurai i know it's not a shaw brothers film but we should pair it with seven samurai oh yeah yeah actually that would be a good good one i mean, it's a movie yeah he, he's also in uh the misfits in 61 uh like we said good the bad and the ugly he was in how the west was won in 62 and then uh in 86 he was in that movie tough guys which i think um kirk douglas was in that and he also played don altabello in the godfather part three which nobody really remembers <laughs> but he did get a uh, the academy award um or the academy i should say gave him a lifetime achievement award for his career in 2011 well that's good yeah 
if you're going to be, you know, a, a character actor that's so recognizable and people are going to be able to see you for so often and for, you know, you're going to be so recognizable, you know, you deserve that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's just worldwide because, you know, not only was he famous in Europe, but he was famous here, too. I thought I thought Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer's chemistry, like, really clicked in this movie. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I thought they were I thought they were really good together. I thought they did a great job of kind of playing off each other, you know, sort of, you know, uh, the nonverbal communication where they're just kind of able to give each other a look. And yeah, yeah I thought that was great. Yeah, because what's his name? Uh, Terrence Hill. He definitely underplayed it very well. I thought he was just so cool. I will say one of my favorite things about this uh, this one was the movie poster didn't have like <laughs> weird surprised look on Terrence Hill's face. Like, Oh my God, I thought I had to fart, but that was diarrhea. Like that's the look on his face. It's like, I'm imposing. It's like, no, you're not. And you, know, you got, uh, you know, uh, Bud Spencer sitting there looking like he's desperately trying to pass a kidney stone. Like, it's like that's way better than I could draw, but those are not the expressions that I would draw in there. <laughs> well, like you said last time, it looks like Bud Spencer's taking a giant shit and Terrence Hill is shocked at it. Yeah. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> it's like, what is going on? Oh, man. Uh, so just getting into the cast a little bit more, of course, Brock Peters, as you said, was played Thomas. And like I said, I recognize his voice. All I could hear was when. When Captain get him Kirk, back. You get him back. back. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> when Kirk is, you know, telling them I'm going to attempt time travel, and then ksh, the, it breaks up, and he's yelling, "Get it back!" And he was in Soylent Green. Did you know that? I did not. I haven't seen that. Oh, it's a great movie with um, uh, Charlton Heston. I know Charlton Heston, and I know that Soylent Green is people. Ah! Spoiler alert. <laughs> well, I mean, even if you haven't seen that, like, right. you know. It's, I think they even lampooned it. it on The Simpsons, didn't they? They did a few things uh, like that on The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> they, did a, they also did a parody of it on um, Saturday Night Live many, many years ago. Uh, John Goodman was hosting the show, I believe, and they kept using Phil Hartman because he did a great uh, Charlton Heston at the time. Right. He even played Charlton Heston on The Simpsons. That's right. So they were like, oh, we're updating it for, you know, the year 2000. And, like, they kept changing, like, oh, Soylent Green is made out of, you know, like, what they have? Soylent cow pies. <laughs> like, it's made of people. They're like, oh, man, I thought I was eating cow shit. Like, oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> the only part of that skit I remember, but I remember it, like, because I was like, when it came out oh jeez that's funny i i just i just remember the visual of him coming out all haggard yelling that soylent green is people i didn't remember the circumstances around it <laughs> and then he like he came out like two or three times in different sketches and just would, like jump in and and yell yeah he it. kept coming out yeah <laughs> But anyways, uh, Brock Peters, he was a last-minute add-in, and I think, or at least he felt like he was a last-minute add-in, and I think it was because Kalitsi wanted to sort of match the novel because the novel had four characters, and that that's exactly where the title came from, as you mentioned at the beginning. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Kevin McCarthy as Drake. I mean, to me, 
his, you know, invasion of the body snatchers, even though I do re- very well remember him from uh, Inner Space and UHF, which I loved him in UHF. But every time I'd seen him growing up, all I could think of, especially when he uses the line in the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland, where he comes running out and he's like, they're here, they're here, you know. And he just, yeah, he just, almost gets hit by the car. Yeah, no, he does get hit by a car. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm trying to remember. Oh, you know, I'm, convi- I'm confusing him with... Um, what the hell's his name? Dick, whatever from uh, he was in Gremlins and Dick Miller, cab driver that hit Clark Kent in the '78 Superman. Yeah, Dick Miller. Yeah, yeah, Dick Miller. Yeah, he was just you know, I I would get them confused like with because they're just like those guys, you know, like yeah, they're in everything. <laughs> I love those character actors. They're so so much fun. They're so good to watch. Um, you know what I thought was interesting when doing research on this movie? I saw it listed. I don't remember whether it was IMDb or whatever, but it was listed as a Western slash comedy, which. Yeah, I saw that list. I'm like, comedy. Right. I mean, like, I guess some of the stuff could have been considered funny. Like when Hutch punches the guy right out of the bank at the beginning, <laughs> like literally out yeah. the door. But like. I mean, it was a Western with humorous moments in it, but I wouldn't consider it an out-and-out comedy. No, I wouldn't consider it a comedy at all. Like, it had a couple of, like, kind of funny moments, but, like, maybe, you know, Khaleesi's idea of humor right. is a little different from mine. From I mean, Italy. <laughs> I, I have a very unconventional sense of humor, don't get me wrong, but, uh, you know... <laughs> That I didn't. I wouldn't call that a. No. <laughs> I wouldn't call that a comedy. But you'd mentioned the scene in the in the synopsis that I thought was hilarious, where that the um, the bank president's secretary, whatever you want to call him, is sitting there, and the camera keeps you know moving in on him, and you don't see what's going on, but you hear the crash, boom, bang in the office. <laughs> that yes. was hilarious. What I think is funny is that like. The sound effects that come from behind a door right. are exactly as loud as sound effects that are happening like out on the street <laughs> or in a room. Like no matter what, the sound effects are exactly the same. They're not muffled. They're not right. like, you know like you would expect from behind closed doors. Right. <laughs> I wonder if he did that on purpose. It just made it to add to the comedy of the scene. It's probably part of the the dub track, you know, like we were talking about. Like, there, oh, that's true. You know, you have to redub everything, and it's like, all right, we're all we're recording this all, you know, all this ADR is going in at, on the same level. I don't care, like, you know, and this is obviously something that's always an issue in like every one of these films, but the, this is the first time we're mentioning it, so I don't think it's you know, it's not a huge deal to be honest, right. but. It's definitely something that has been uh, that has popped up in the past. Well, I wonder too if it, you know back then it wasn't like they could just run it through a filter to make it sound like it was muffled. They probably had to you know jump through hoops to to get it to you know to do that effect, and it was like ah fuck it, nobody's gonna notice. Clack those coconuts together. We have a bunch of horses in this scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. So th- there was a lot of, of humor in this movie. Like when Hutch is trying to get his picture taken and the, the guy puts the dove in his hand. And it was just so yeah. new, you know? 
This will cost a few cents more, but I guarantee it'll be worth it. Yeah. And I was like, stay still, stay still. Ah, you moved. Here's a bird. Like, that'll help you keep still. It's like, wait, what? You're right. <laughs> and I just want, I need to uh, make a correction. Uh, I said Vietnamese Walt earlier. It was a uh, Viennese Walt Viennese from Vietnam, yep. not Vietnam. Right. So, <laughs> sorry, I, uh, I, I uh, don't have my glasses, so I was having an issue reading that. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, man. But then, you know, Hutch lets go of the bird, and some dude just shoots it. <laughs> Again, to your point, yeah, why? Why? Because I said so. It's like, what? <laughs> he just like clobbers him on the top of the head and starts this whole huge brawl and he ruins his brand new suit. And to be honest, he looked good. He, he comes did. out, yeah. brand new suit, you know, uh, you know, you got cat wearing what's essentially, I don't know, like a saddle blanket that he fashioned <laughs> into a shirt. Right. Um, he smells awesome. Uh, <laughs> And you know, all these guys, like shirtless guys, like splashing each other. It's like, what is going on here? Well, like, and then to make matters worse, in the middle of the fight, a parade comes marching through. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the other thing I was going to touch on, you got this this guy, like you know, the 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 drum major, I guess, would be his his role because he's leading the 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 parade. Which I don't get where the hell this parade comes from. <laughs> Wait, Walking through clobbering people. It's like, what is going on here? <laughs> this is the most insane thing that could possibly happen. It's like, all right, we could have a cattle stampede. No, parade. <laughs> well, what would be the occasion? Doesn't matter, parade. They're all going to be wearing red. Why? Because it's a parade. And it's just like all these people, like, you don't know what it's from. You don't know where they're going, right. where they from they just show up out of nowhere it's like what what maybe that's like like oh that's comedy it's like is it oh maybe yeah doesn't seem to make sense like there's no reason for it and they didn't seem to care they didn't give a shit that the whole town was having a brawl (laughs) it's just marching just walking through with his stick that he's like you know you know, jauntily pointing up in the air until someone gets in his way and he just absolutely wallops them in the skull. Right. And it's just like, yeah. And no one mentioned the parade. No one pays attention to it. And it was like going through, like, instead of like a main road, it's going like through an alley behind one of the buildings. Like, what the hell is going on? Right. Like between the water trough and the set of stairs, it was like hardly any room for the parade to go through to begin with. Yeah. Like they're four across and all of a sudden they have to like, <laughs> Narrowed down to like single file. <laughs> Why is parade? Right. <laughs> I don't get it. Because parade. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, why? Oh. That was, I mean, I guess that's European sensibility of humor. It must be that, you know. All right. Jerry, what's the funniest thing you could think of? Right. Uh, a parade. Oh, my God. Jerry, you are the man. Get him a raise. <laughs> they probably fired the first guy who suggested, you know, the, the two guys carrying the large piece of glass. Yeah, right? What about these bakers come through, right? And instead of punching everyone, they start throwing pies. <laughs> and what was too bad was that the fight scene was really good. I was really enjoying it. And it's like, what, what, the, what the fuck? Why? <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah, all you have all like the six or seven guys piling on top of Hutch, and he just like oh, breaks that was out. Awesome! Yeah, I remember watching Andre the Giant do that in the Royal Rumble. 
you I know, see. and then every other giant guy that they had in the Royal Rumble for like the next 30 years, like the, <laughs> what they do every time. I always used to like that when the Incredible Hulk would do that in the comics. Oh, yeah. Or even on the show, Lou Ferrigno used to do that all the time. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what are we doing here? And he had like that one guy that he was using to smack everybody else. Right. <laughs> like, ah, taste my boot. Bam. Kicking a guy in the face. And that was really cool because they had kind of established in the last one that he was, you know, almost superhumanly strong. And they, they used it a lot in this one. Like when he had the boxing match. Yeah. Oh, my God, dude. And I love the fact that he didn't even know that they volunteered him for the, for the boxing match. Like, oh, step right up, sir. No, not me. Him. Yeah. <laughs> Punch in the face twice before he realizes what's going on. <laughs> I love the fact that they just kind of like just stood there just punching each other straight right to the face oh. over and over and that's the thing. I mean, it it does stretch the credibility a little bit or, or believability because when you hit a skull, it it hurts like hitting a wall. <laughs> yeah. Well, then I, I think that was, this was another example of some of the comedy where the guy was just kind of sit there. He was out on his feet and Hutch pushes him over with two fingers like we used to see Curly do right. in uh, Three Stooges routines. Did you see that coming? Because I saw that coming. Oh, yeah. I'm like, they're going to sit there. They're going to clobber each other. He's just going to go and blow them over. Yes, that's like, it. That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> Me but too. he just punches them with two fingers. <laughs> and he, you know, after a while, Hutch stopped punching him, and he was, like, giving him, like, a karate chop in the neck. Yeah, he was, like, hitting him, like, right where his shoulder meets his neck. He's like, oh, this is the most savage Vulcan neck pinch I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have a lot of dexterity, so I'm just going to clobber you instead of punching you. <laughs> Oh man, that was just that was so funny. And the other guy, he looked like to be, he was out of it to begin with because he had been hit in the head in previous fights, like leading up to that. Yeah, like he's sitting there, it's like, oh, this is my twenty seventh fight in a row. <laughs> like, dude, give him a glass of water. Like, get him, give him some rest or something. Like, it's got to be hot, and he's a big dude. Right. Like, man, give him a, like, get him a cold rag or like to put on his head, like. <laughs> Like, some like that's terrible. <laughs> coffee is for closers, right? <laughs> I don't need no stinking coffee. <laughs> shark bites, shark bites podcast. It's the greatest show in history from the Dorkning Network. Hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Boobs, Blood, and Badasses, the Hammer Horror Podcast, part of the Dorkening Network, with hosts Dr. Chris and Ro Lauren. Twice a month, we will talk about a Hammer Horror film, only the horror movies of the Hammer catalog from the Britain studio from the 60s, 70s, and the 50s, 60s, and 70s. 
Join us as we not only discuss the film's plot line, but also factoids about the different actors, production crew, and behind-the-scenes facts, as well as going over any of the information that happens to be on the Blu-rays or DVDs from these fantastic films. We will be covering classic films from Hammer's catalog, Horror of Dracula, Horror of Frankenstein, Brides of Dracula, Prince of Darkness, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, just to name a few. We will also not be shying away from topics like sex, blood, and abuse towards women that many people may think be too taboo to talk about. Join us again twice a month here on the Dorkening Network and check out the rest of the shows on the Dorkening Network. You can find us at ChrisDSAV on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at RoLorn, R-O-L-0-R-E-N. But, you know, on, on a slightly different note, I thought it was uh, interesting where the whole backstory of um, of Kako and how, you know, he got blamed for stabbing the guy. He ended up 15 years in jail, wait, you know, waiting his, awaiting his revenge. And that reminded me of Lee Van Cleef and Dave Anger because wasn't he, he was in prison for 15 years also, right? Yeah, it was a very – I mean, it's a very similar plot in a lot of these, uh, a lot of these Westerns. You know, it's usually like – the young up and coming kid getting revenge, like in uh, what the hell was the first one? Death rides a horse. That's right. You know, yeah. the young kids. It's like, oh, you were there when my family was murdered. You shot my pa. Now I'm gonna get you. Yeah. You know, the the main guy unwittingly gives all the uh, gives his young protege all the uh, information he needs in order to beat him. You know, like again, Lee Van Cleef in Day of Anger, yeah. which he did with uh, <laughs> you know Montgomery Wood there, uh, Ringo. Right. And then you have, uh, you know, you have that plot line or you have the wrongfully imprisoned man. Again, Ringo in the first Ringo movie. Yep. You know, like we see this over and over again. It's like, you framed me for a crime I didn't commit, but now you need my skills. Yeah. <laughs> you, and, you know, obviously we've seen that that trope play out, I don't know, 8,000 times in any number of action movies. But I like that in, in this one, it was a little different because... Even though he stole the money, he really didn't care about the money at all. He just wanted revenge. Like you said in the synopsis, when he, they're like, oh, did you ask him for the money? He goes, oh, I forgot. Oh, my bad. I, I shot him in the face first. Right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still consumed by revenge. Yeah, especially because you stole our money. Right. And that's, that's even what Hutch says to him. He goes, oh, yeah, sure. You're really, uh, you're really philanthropic with our money. Right. <laughs> He's just giving Go it away. In- after all, I paid for it. <laughs> and it was funny, too, though, because I thought they really set up their motives well because, you know, Hutch was was mapping his life out. He's like, you know, I'm going to get a place and I'm going to put my money in the bank. And, you know, they got this thing called interest and every month the bank's going to pay me. And he had it all mapped out. And when it got stolen, that was his his motive. Like he, it was I thought it was like um, it was greed was what prompted him you know he it was that was the theme there was that he just wanted the money back and Kako didn't care he just wanted revenge and i i guess cat just didn't care one way or the other he just was blown with the wind <laughs> yeah he just you know whatever it's not mine yeah <laughs> he's even like when they were riding on the horse and hutch is laying out his life and he's like are you sleeping he's like no, he's like, but I would be if you'd shut up. <laughs> and then, but then he's like, you know, you don't even care about money. And he's like, yeah, well, not really, no. Yeah, it's it's uh, 
it, it's it's so weird, you know, because he was he was definitely, uh, you know, like his whole thing. Like I said, when he when he first met them and like got the drop on, him, yeah, like oh, you know, I I just need a little bit. Oh, hey, money corrupt. You boys to maintain your innocence. I'll just take all this from you. Right. <laughs> You're a jerk. <laughs> And he wasn't that bad of a jerk. All he did was take the bullets out of Cat's gun and throw them both on the ground in front of him. He could have taken the gun, yeah, too. Give me a loaded gun. No, no, no. I can't do that. Right. My grandfather always said. <laughs> it's like, ain't you a grandfather? Just a well of wisdom. <laughs> yeah. He, uh, you know, it, it was good. I liked this movie. Like, it was a lot of fun, but there's definitely, uh, uh, a language barrier or a culture barrier when it comes to what is comedy. Right. <laughs> Although Hutch had a great line when they go to, um, uh, they stop the bullies from going after Thomas's girl there. And uh, the guy reaches for his gun and Hutch goes, skip it. He eats a dozen like you before he even starts having fun. <laughs> you know, referring to cat. Yeah. Yeah. When he punches the, uh, the guy who was, uh, Groping on Thomas's lady friend there. Yeah, yeah. Um, that showed me. That showed heroism. Remember, I think last week we kind of debated whether they were heroes or not, and they didn't have to step in and help her. There was no gain. I look at him as um, when I say hero- heroism, but being a good guy. I I look at her. Uh, look at her. Look at them still as like you know they they may not be strictly heroes they're not strictly villains they're just kind of you know they have their own moral code and they follow that specific moral code and if it over overlaps with yours and it can help you then fine if not oh well right like you know we're gonna do that you know you don't hit women you don't you know cheat people you don't shoot doves yeah you don't shoot you don't shoot birds for no reason just to be a jerk you know, because I mean that's tantamount to theft. You know, like that guy can't replace the bird. Right. Like, it's yeah. Dead now. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, there, there was a, there was a lot of little things. I just thought that leading up to the end there, which I thought the um, it did sort of drag a little bit in the middle, but the last third was really really entertaining, and I liked how it's kind of it was like in three. The whole movie was in sort of three separate locations. You know, you mm-hmm. had the beginning and the middle, and then the end was at the, um, I, mean, I think the middle was the party that uh, Kako threw for himself, and then at the end was the um, the casino. Right. I, I liked how, you know, talking about all their motives and everything, that's what led up to the whole end, except for Thomas. I didn't quite understand. Like, he didn't have to go, you know, doing the tightrope act to break into the casino. He didn't have to do any of that, because he didn't, he didn't care about money either, you know? It was Hutch wanted to do it because he wanted his money back, and uh, Kako wanted to get revenge on Drake, and you know, Cat was just along for the ride. So I guess Thomas was too. Yeah, it kind of seemed like that. Like Thomas was just like, you know, he wanted to help these guys out, you know, because they just happened to run into each other, and it was mutually beneficial to all of them. You know, especially with like, oh, we're gonna get three hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Like, let's uh, let's share that out a little bit. Like, but but he even said though that um, when Kako offered him money and he turned it down because he wanted to earn it on his own. Yeah, but there's a big difference between you know like oh I'll I'll loan you five thousand and here's fifty grand. That's true. <laughs> That's a good point. Like oh I don't have to pay this back and it's ten times what you offered me in the first place. Yeah okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm good with that. 
Well, what was up with Kakopoulos, too? He's constantly pulling things out of his chest hairs. Were they rocks or nits or ticks or what the hell? He's, he's like scratching. And, I, you know, Kevin McCarthy made a, a comment about it, but, you know, because he said he had fleas or whatever. Oh, but he'd like pull something out that you could almost see in his fingers. It was like, I, I first I thought it was a rock, but it must have been like a yeah, bug. Or... Yeah, that was bizarre. Such a weird character. I was going to say, the guys in the Wild West were, you know, they they weren't exactly renowned for their cleanliness. Right. <laughs> oh, My man. impeccable hygiene, sir. <laughs> I thank you, Black Bart. Oh, man. But it was funny, though, too, like, you know, in the scene where Kekopoulos throws the, the party for himself and he makes one of the waiters or waitresses give uh, Hutch some alcoholic beverage. And, of course, Cat warns him, you know, that's going to knock you off your on your ass. And he still chugs it anyways because he's pissed off about losing the money. And then Kako starts messing with him and he, he you know, crouches down behind the table in front of his wanted poster. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, I, th- there were some... I think it was unintentional comedy, to be honest with you. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Because <laughs> when Hutch goes to grab him, you would have thought the table with the candles would have been knocked over, but that, that, they didn't actually show that. He just literally grabs him off screen and pulls him in, in front of the camera. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that these guys um, definitely by the end of the film definitely uh, showed a lot of chemistry. And I'm definitely looking forward to the third film, especially like, again, we don't watch the trailers. Or at least right. I don't. Yep. Don't watch trailers i've never seen any of these so i'm kind of hoping that uh that uh, eli wallach comes back as kakopoulos you know because we kind of see them at the end of the film you know thomas and his lady friend right off with their their coach uh, on their little uh it's almost like a you know wild west rv you know yeah like it's you know like they're covered not a covered wagon either because it's made of wood but like a little uh I don't even know what you would call it. Hmm. Like so I guess some kind of wagon or, or, or like a party, a party wagon. Yeah. Like that's where they live. That's where their stuff was. That's where they slept. Yeah. And they're on the road. They, they travel from town to town as performing artists. So, you know, or washing dishes, depending on, you know, what the town has to offer. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they kind of went off, they kept going straight. And the other three, you know, Hutch and, and Kako and, and Kat all go off to the right and just kind of like, you know, you follow them. So it's like, okay, they're clearly continuing their adventure. And that was a way of showing that cinematically, which I thought was pretty awesome. Yeah, I agree with that. And especially considering that this one picked up, you know, pretty much right after the last one. Hopefully the next one will do the same thing. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, like, you know, Hutch comes back and the next one's like, I don't feel too well, fellers. And like, you know, his head wound reopens up. <laughs> oh, that's right. He got shot. I forgot about that. Oh, you got shot two movies ago. Quit your belly aching. <laughs> I liked the whole end scene because, um, you know, it was just, it was just the whole setup was really cool when they figured out the top and the bottom, the person looking down, and then the whole, you know, pipe that you could talk to the guy in the basement to put the magnet under the, the, the um, roulette wheel. I just loved that and that they sealed themselves in. So it was very tense because you knew eventually these guys were going to figure it out and try and stop them. Yeah. Like, it's like, oh, this is cool. Like, I would have, you know, you want to, you want to, uh, you want to add some comedy to that. Like, you know, show, you know, you got Thomas underneath, you know, show Hutch like tossing him down like some jelly beans or something, traveling down the, the <laughs> pipe and pops out and catches one. Like, that would have been funny. Right. <laughs> That's true. That's true. 
But it was cool because like the whole, the way they faced off, it wasn't like everyone left the room. They were all, all the people were on the floor, all the bystanders. And, you know, you got the waltz music playing and, you know, Kevin McCarthy and his men and, you know, our main characters there facing off against each other. And then they start to back up like almost in unison. And it was just a, such a great scene. And, and it isn't until, the, you know, the roulette wheel stops. That was the signal to shoot. And I guess I read something about um, uh, signals like that. They sort of heighten the ritualistic nature in a lot of these duel scenes in the spaghetti westerns. And and it just sort of harkens back to the old, you know, the tradition of nobly settling your disputes via duel, you know? Yeah, I uh, I think we should bring that back. Yep. Settling disputes <laughs> with duel. No, it's my pair of shorts, all right? <laughs> Let's have a duel over it. <laughs> I choose pistols and down, sir. Oh, why do I have to insult a guy who says, uh... <laughs> Oh, man. So I do have a piece of trivia about this movie, which you probably, you wouldn't get this because we haven't covered this film yet. But um, remember, they, they're they on the trail of Kako, and they just literally just barge into these people's home and just sit down for dinner with them, Cat and Hutch. <laughs> I think you mentioned that. Yeah. <laughs> the um, Did I? You might have mentioned that, or my, I might be thinking about something else. Like, I, there was, like, another movie where, like, people were doing that. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was just like, I, I think they were, like, randomly drunk where they would just, like, show up and be like, hey, I'm coming to your house for dinner. Right. That might have been one of the Ringo films, maybe the first one. But, no, because I, I have, definitely haven't talked to you about this, but I guess they when they go into the house, uh, the, the children there are the same children that played the McBain kids in the movie uh, in Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. And that's definitely confirmed. So it's one of these those trivia things that if you want to, you know, test a person says, oh, I, I know everything about spaghetti westerns, you know, that's a good trivia question for them. Yeah, I do. I do enjoy a good, uh, a good random trivia. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. And um, one last thing I just wanted to touch on was... Um, uh, Kalitsi, the director, he's, he was often accused of sort of taking themes and situations from other films and using them in his own. But I think he does it to his advantage because um, they claim God Forgives I Don't was sort of a retelling of For a Few Dollars More, which, again, we'll cover that. And then this one, the episodic structure of the movie, like we said, the three parts is closer in spirit to the good, the bad and the ugly. But, I, you know, once we you see those other films, we can sort of discuss whether they he really ripped them off or was it just, you know, thematically and that he uh, copied them? Yeah. I, I mean, again, there's only really seven stories you can tell, you know, and there's so many different ways you have to, you have to be able to tell them. I mean, Star Wars, Harry Potter, like, you know, all these things, you know, it's like, Oh, it's the wise old mentor coming to tell this person that they're the chosen one. And, you know, they, have to go on this quest but they lose their mentor halfway through and yeah like <laughs> oh man all right so patsy your final thoughts on uh ace high i recommend this one this was a lot of fun it's not a comedy but there are some unintentionally funny things but i i enjoyed this one this was uh this was a fun one i like the fact that you know what's his name uh kako kept getting the upper hand on our heroes and you know, finally at the end, you know, Cat's like, you do it again and I'll kill you. It's like, ah, oh, fool me 27 times. Shame on me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I really enjoyed it, too. And I, I kind of almost thought uh, Eli Wallach stole the film. Um, oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. Like he, he could have been the star. Like the only reason he wasn't is because the other two guys were in the, the last, the last one. Right. Right. I did feel like, um, uh, Brock Peters and Kevin McCarthy uh, got a little short changed here. They really didn't have a lot to do. Would have been nice to see them, you know, more in the film. Yeah. I mean, anytime you can put Kevin McCarthy in something like you have my interest. Right. I forgot. I saw his name like you did at the beginning. And then I completely forgot that he that his name was in the credits. And then when he popped up at the end, I was like, "Ooh, there he is!" And he had such that that uh, that smirk on his face. I just wanted to slap his mutton chops and slap that smirk right off his face. Yeah, I mean that's you know that's who he is. Like that's um, like you were saying when I see his name in the credits at the beginning, I'm like, "Oh, all right." I wonder if it's the same Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. You know, again, <laughs> I don't look anything up. I just watch the film. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Um, and then I totally forgot about it. I'm like, and then I see, I'm like, oh shit, what's his name again? And then <laughs> I recognize the name. And then I forget it by the end that he's in it. Cause I'm, you know, I'm kind of captivated by Eli Wallach. Like he's really, really good at this. And then you see him at the end and it's like, shit, what was his name? It was in the credits. And I was like, oh man, I'm so glad this guy is like, who the hell is he? <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, it's great seeing him in this. It's great seeing him in a western, uh, something yeah. that's, you know, I've never seen him in. Um, yep. And I think as we go along, we're going to start seeing more and more uh, random people that we recognize from other things. Like, you know, again, um, Brock Peters. Like, right. it's like, oh shit, yeah, that's you know, that's get him back. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I knew him from. Right. Right. It was, it, that was so funny because I just remember that moment watching the film where I would hear him talk and I'm like, why do I know that voice? I know him. I've seen this guy. And then all of a sudden, get him back, popped into my head. And I'm like, oh, that's who it is. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, it's. I, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely recommend this movie also. I think it's, um, I like the final sequence. I thought it was really tense and it was enjoyable because re- they really had you on edge. You wanted to know how things were going to turn out. I mean, maybe we're we're slightly colored with the um, the Shaw Brothers films because you know, but like you said, going into this not knowing anything about it, you really don't know who's going to live and who's going to die. So yeah, and well, I mean, knowing that this is part of a trilogy now, right? Yeah, yeah. I I, I was pretty sure neither of these guys, and you know, again, Hutch shrugged off a headshot fairly well, so <laughs> wasn't overly concerned for him. Well, he had more plot information than the others. <laughs> yeah, he still had a ways to go. Like, yeah. you know, as soon as he, he he serves his purpose in the next film, he'll just die. Uh, Hutch, I remember when you got shot in the head three days ago. <laughs> <laughs> now, they got their money at the end, right? I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, they got the money back. Okay. Well, they, they got, you know, they had 50000 and that's what Kako stole from him because uh, he stole the gold. And then... He lost it all in the casino, and they got it all back. They got three hundred and sixty thousand. So that's sixty grand more than if they had just kept the gold from the train robbery, right? Like three hundred thousand in the train robbery. So even if they had kept all that, they still came out on top ten thousand. That's right. That's right. And even the um, the pissed off patrons when they realized that they were being swindled by Drake, they guaranteed that they would get the money once they got out of the situation they were in. I, I remember that now. Yeah, like. It's yeah, because they're like, let us kill him, because you know we've been we've been doing this forever. Yeah, 
You know, then you see, wait, don't kill him yet. Get the money first. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Because <laughs> he did that with the previous guy, too. It's like, wait, did you get him to give the money? Oh, I must have forgotten about the money. <laughs> Definitely uh, not the money for him. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's it. I mean, that's, um, yeah, that's his motivation. It was revenge, not money. But he did have that weird line about, about his grandfather at the end, you know, talking about, like, if you slice a loaf of bread, eventually you'll starve. You know, kind of like, don't split up the treasure. Oh, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. But yeah, final thoughts. Uh, I love this. I thought it was really, really good. It was a lot of fun. Again, it's a movie. So, yeah, Hutch, <laughs> you know, maybe they passed the, I don't know. They found Jesus and he healed them. I don't know. I've seen weirder <laughs> shit on, on movies. I don't know what happened, but uh, he was fine. You know, he slept it off. Yeah, yeah. Walk it off. Walk it off. <laughs> I mean, because he again, he was in the back, shot in the head. Like he, and it wasn't like, oh, it grazed the side of my head. Like no, he got shot in the goddamn head. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that happened. Well, what I figure we can do is ignore it completely. And then we'll be fine. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> if you acknowledge it, you give it power. Yeah. Just don't think about it. Right. <laughs> you still complaining about that? Jesus, that was like an hour ago. <laughs> what about me and my saddle source? Oh, man. Yeah, I, I recommend both of these. The only thing I would have changed up, like I said earlier, is I would have paired this with Life Gamble because of the uh, the cheating casino owner right. aspect. That I think it would have matched up a little better. But again, it's hard to know what's going to match up with what. Like, you just I don't watch anything. You just say, this is what we're watching. Right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said before, too, That's and much it. like I said at the beginning of last episode was um, – we're watching the Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer films because hopefully once this is done, we can have Terrence Hill on the show after we we feel like we know what we're talking about when it comes to his body of work. I would love that. Yeah, that would be awesome. So, Mr. Hill, if you're listening to this, please, please contact us. So, Patsy, once again, thank you for going down the, uh, the Shaw Brothers and Spaghetti Westerns rabbit hole with me. How can the listeners find you online? Uh, if you go to uh, throwdownthursdaypodcast.com, that has uh, all our latest news and articles, as well as our latest episodes of uh, not only Throwdown Thursday, but also uh, the Shark Bites podcast. You can also find us on YouTube. Uh, if you search Throwdown Thursday podcast, we have a couple of playlists on there. We have some live videos. We just did a, a two and a half hour Godzilla versus Kong wild speculation a thon with a, a whole bunch of guests. Some nice. folks who were more uh, well versed in kaiju than than others. A couple of people who were uh, who are brand new to the film, so we're getting a lot of different perspectives. Uh, we'll be doing another one for uh, the Snyder Cut of Justice League, which I'm very excited for. Nice. You can also find uh, playlists for the Loudest Sports Show that uh, we have on uh, both YouTube and all the podcasts can be found on Spotify as well. And uh, obviously, you can find me here. You can find me on uh, various shows on the Dorkening Network, like the Indie Creator Spotlight. And uh, come March, you'll be able to find uh, me on a uh, project that both Roger, uh, Rigor and I are, are both a part of, uh, The Other Side of Midnight on the Pivot streaming app. That's right. Very excited for that. I play the, uh, I am a puppeteer and voice of uh, what we call Darklings. Uh, his name is Wilmouse. 
and he is a 300-year-old little fuzzy guy. Uh, we, I, I came to the realization today that he is essentially uh, Bert from uh, of Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street if <laughs> Bert was bitten by a werewolf. Oh, there you go. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you look at the a side-by-side -side comparison of the two. Nice. That's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, thank you, dear listeners, for also following us down this rabbit hole. And don't forget the East meets the West, of course, is also part of the, Dork the Dorkening Podcast Network. So don't forget to check us out there as well as uh, Patsy's shows and all the other great shows that are on the Dorkening.com. Uh, send us your thoughts on today's episode to the East meets the West 42 at gmail.com. And check out our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you can also find our sister show, Then Is Now, where we discuss all the cool stuff that you may have missed out on and stuff that you should know. Folks, don't forget to go wherever you download podcasts from and leave us a great review so that more people can find the show. And the East Meets the West podcast is now on YouTube. So just go to youtube.com slash user slash Uncle Death One and you'll find all our podcasts there plus other fun stuff. And be sure to not only hit the subscribe button, but also share it with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. That's all the time we have for today. Join us again on our next episode of The East Meets the West. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com. is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. All clips played on the show are property of their copyright holders. All other material is copyright Jupiter Media. Mm -hmm.